Welcome to the Laser Therapy Institute weekly podcast, the world's first podcast about medical laser therapy for healthcare providers. Each week, we discuss the latest research, interviews with experts, and how laser therapy can enhance your practice. Now, here is the founder of LTI and your host, Dr. Jason Roundtree. Hello, thanks for joining me again this week on the Laser Therapy Institute podcast. My name is Dr. Jason Roundtree, and I'm pleased to be with you here again today, bringing you some of the research, really distilling down three different studies today that we're looking at with carpal tunnel surgery. I do this so that you don't have to spend as much time reading the papers yourself, and hopefully I can bring you some good clinical pearls from these publications. As always, if you have any questions, please reach out to me at info at lasertherapyinstitute.org. That's my direct email. You can also jump on the website and find out more. You can even set up a meeting with us to figure out if what we offer is going to maybe potentially be beneficial for you and your practice. But anyway, we're talking today about carpal tunnel syndrome. Carpal tunnel syndrome is one of those where uh, people get surgery for this pretty frequently, almost at the you know the drop of the hat. If it gets diagnosed, oftentimes it is a really rapid progression straight to surgery. Uh, sometimes people do get routed into conservative care, physical therapy, chiropractic, uh, the use of bracing, uh, even the injection of cortisone or an anti-inflammatory into the carpal tunnel itself. That can be used at times, uh, but a lot of times people just go straight into surgery itself. So is, is that a bad thing? Should that, you know, is that really indicative of a problem? It turns out we do have pretty good data behind carpal tunnel surgery for severe cases, but not nearly as good for the mild to moderate cases. And so when you hear a patient say, ah, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and get surgery. I've already got it scheduled. Maybe dig into that a little bit more. Not everyone does well with surgery. And, and I'm going to bring you information uh, on that that you can use to educate your patients because, if, you know, ultimately what the patients decide to do is up to them. But it's our job as healthcare providers to educate the patients. And I have to say, in many cases, patients just don't get a clear enough understanding of surgeries, surgical procedures, success rates, uh, the possibility of ongoing symptoms afterward. That just doesn't always get done very clearly. So if you have contact with a patient and they're not getting educated fully, it's your job to make sure that they do have a full understanding of what they're getting into. And that doesn't mean you have to argue them out of surgery. But that means that you might want to be able to have the data on hand to give them so they are making a truly informed decision on their health care. And again, we do have pretty good evidence for carpal tunnel surgery in severe cases. But let's go ahead and talk about this study that has some of this information in there. Now, this was published in 2013 in the European Journal of Physical and Rehabilitation Medicine. And the title of the study is Pain and Electrophysiological Parameters Are Improved by combined 830 and 1064 high-intensity laser in symptomatic carpal tunnel syndrome versus transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. Basically, high-intensity laser therapy versus TENS for carpal tunnel syndrome. Now, they open up the study by saying that compression of the median nerve at the wrist is a common cause of pain in the hand and is the most frequent compression syndrome seen in general practice, as well as in population-based studies. The clinical features of carpal tunnel syndrome are variable, affecting more frequently women than men. Symptoms include pain and paresthesia, usually in at least two of the three digits innervated by the median nerve, which is the thumb, index, and middle finger, but sometimes also refer to the palm of the hand and the radial half of the ring finger. 
Now, the combination of these subjective symptoms, physical signs such as weakness and muscle atrophy, and electrophysiological parameters leads to the diagnosis of a compression syndrome of the median nerve at the carpal tunnel. So that's carpal tunnel syndrome. Now, we know, and especially if you've seen a lot of these patients in practice, many, many cases of carpal tunnel, or what a patient believes is carpal tunnel, turns out to be a totally different issue. Uh, it could be related to problems with the neck, the cervical spine. It could be a brachial plexus issue. There can be cases like ulnar nerve entrapment in the elbow. And even things like ongoing hypertonicity, inflammation, tinnitus at the elbow can create these kind of downstream problems in the hand, which ends up not being a true carpal tunnel syndrome. Or you can have that double crush syndrome where you do have carpal tunnel, but you also have something like upper cross syndrome or thoracic outlet syndrome that can be magnifying or playing up some of those symptoms from carpal tunnel entrapment too because you can have nerve inflammation present throughout the length of the nerve and it may just really show up where it is more narrow in that carpal tunnel or in that thoracic outlet region. So, you know, if you haven't dealt with a lot of these cases, and maybe you're a new grad or you've not done a lot of extremity issues, when you have someone present to your office and they say, hey doc, I think I've got carpal tunnel, don't take them at the word. Do your good full history. Do a good thorough exam. There's a few very simple tests that can be done to check to really confirm that diagnosis. And then really before having surgery done, you're probably going to want to order a nerve conduction study to make sure that you're really tracking down the locations of nerve impingement where these symptoms can be uh, generating from. Because the last thing you want to do, matter of fact, the last thing any of us want to do is render a treatment, whether it is surgical or non-surgical, and not have success. And that is exactly what will happen if you get your diagnosis wrong, no matter what treatment gets rendered, right? If you have the wrong diagnosis, the wrong working idea of the problem, then you're addressing the wrong problem and the patient won't get better. This is really, um, I've seen this many times, many, many times, where people go and they have the surgery and they still have continued symptoms and then it's figured out later that we had an ulnar nerve entrapment or we had thoracic outlet syndrome or you know even vice versa. I've had a patient before that had significant, very, very clearly defined carpal tunnel syndrome and their chiropractor was convinced that it was a problem with the neck and after just a few minutes of real thorough physical exam, I was convinced that it was carpal tunnel syndrome. The patient went ahead, got the nerve conduction study. It was carpal tunnel syndrome. They were able to have surgery and had a great outcome uh, with full recovery after that. So be very diligent about your diagnosis, your exam, your history, and then track that patient's progress and make sure that whatever's happening, they are getting the relief that they should be getting, that you would expect them to be getting. So, mention surgery. Uh, this paper talks about surgery too. They say, although surgery remains the most frequent treatment used to relieve median nerve compression at the wrist, some concerns about this management have been raised, and conservative pharmacological as well as non-pharmacological therapies are being increasingly used. Surgical release of the median nerve does have recurrent symptoms in 0.3 to 19% of patients following surgical carpal tunnel release, with up to 12% requiring re-exploration. According to the literature, from 43 to 90% of patients who undergo repeat operations continue to have symptoms, and one in five get no relief. Conservative treatments are therefore being increasingly considered as a primary level treatment for carpal tunnel syndrome. So prior to being sent off to surgery, maybe we should be considering these more conservative care therapies. And they're including pharmacological therapies in this as well, not just things like uh, laser or TENS or soft tissue work or exercises and stretching. 
You know, they're including medications when uh, used appropriately as well. And this is this is probably a good time to go ahead and bring in a couple other papers uh, to talk about really some of the effects of carpal tunnel surgery. And the first one I'll bring up is a study from 1996, and its title is Biomechanical Alterations in the Carpal Arch and Hand Muscles After Carpal Tunnel Release, a further approach toward understanding the function of the flexor retinaculum and the cause of post-operative grip weakness. And they say in here that carpal tunnel release surgery, where they cut the flexor retinaculum to open up that nerve space, does result in an anatomic attachment loss for the flexor pollicis brevis, the abductor pollicis brevis, the opponent's pollicis, and the opponent's digiti minimi. Anyway, you're losing the connection point for multiple hand muscles, and so there is a contingent of patients that are going to have significant strength loss, where patients show difficulties with grasping, lifting, uh, twisting off lids and caps, screwing, pulling ropes, pinching. Not everyone, but some, of, some people will, and, and that is something that is not typically brought up in these surgical consults, at least for many of the patients that I have seen undergo surgeries. And another study to bring up here is one from 2013. The title of this one is The Relationship of Trigger Finger and Flexor Tender Volar Migration After Carpal Tunnel Release. So in this one, they say that carpal tunnel release surgery does alter the tendon biomechanics of the A1 pulley, and there is definitely a higher occurrence of trigger finger after carpal tunnel release that is caused by the bowstringing effects of having those flexor tendons not be restrained by that flexor retinaculum in the same way they were. And that probably makes sense to most of us, at least um, on a biomechanical standpoint, right? If you, if you cut that flexor retinaculum, that support that kind of keeps the tendons in place, you're losing muscle attachment sites, you're creating a bowstringing effect of those flexor tendons, there's probably gonna be some after effects, which is just one more reason to say, before we go headlong into surgery for mild carpal tunnel syndrome, maybe we should be more careful about how we get there and how many of our patients get there. And again, you know, on this podcast, I'm not making medical recommendations. This has to be on you as a healthcare practitioner to decide what really is best for that individual patient. But do your patients a service of really digging into this. It's not just a simple, oh yeah, go get the surgery done, you'll be great. Maybe that is the best case for that patient, but maybe it's not. Make sure the patient is fully informed so they can make the right decision for themselves. So anyway, back to our, our study from 2013 about laser and TENS for carpal tunnel syndrome. You know, they use TENS, this transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. If you're in the physical medicine space, you probably use TENS, you've probably heard of TENS many times. But just to recap, TENS has been shown to control pain by activating the gated control of nociceptive inputs in the spinal cord through highly myelinated afferents, uh, but no effects whatsoever have ever been seen on tissue inflammation or sensory nerve conduction velocity. So this is um, essentially a low-grade way to help control pain and doesn't really do anything for tissue healing or tissue health, whereas what these authors say about laser therapy is that laser has been shown in vitro to have a marked positive effect on nervous tissue, improving regeneration, nerve repair, and Schwann cell proliferation, and that it enhances cellular metabolism by means of activation of the respiratory chain. So as opposed to TENS, where the focus is really on those afferent fibers, we're talking about improving the health of nervous tissue when we're talking about laser therapy. So in this particular study, they took 20 patients of both sexes, uh, affected by carpal tunnel syndrome, and they screened them by checking for pain 
and or paresthesia in the area of the distribution of the median nerve, and then a positive Tunnell and or Phelan's test. And we're given that neurophysiological classification of a mild or moderate median nerve lesion. So no severe cases in this, in this position. And again, we really do have pretty good evidence for surgery in those severe cases. We're talking mild and moderate cases here. And so prior to the beginning of treatment, these patients had a distal motor latency test as well as a sensory nerve conduction velocity test. And then they had their pain rated as well. All the patients were treated five days a week for three weeks. And half of them uh, did get TENS and half of them got laser. For the group that got TENS, they would get 30 minutes of TENS with the electrodes uh, placed along the carpal ligament and then proximally on the course of the median nerve. The following settings, they used rectangular waves of 80 millisecond width, 100 hertz frequency, with the intensity set to below muscle contraction, right? The other group was treated with high-intensity laser therapy. And here's what they did with this. This is quite interesting. They used a dual wavelength 830 and 1064 nanometer high-intensity laser, 18 watts of 1064 and 7 watts of 830 nanometer laser. This is with a fiber optic probe, and the spot size was only about one square centimeter. That is a very, very small spot size. And when we're talking about high-intensity laser, and we're talking about 25 total watts of infrared light down to that level, that very, very small spot size, that is very intense. Further, it was moved along the course of the nerve for about 10 centimeters, which is not a large area, so we're talking about 10 square centimeters, which means their total dose was 250 joules per centimeter squared. Now, if you've been with me on the podcast for a while, if you're at all nerdy about this stuff like I am, you'll know right now 250 joules per centimeter squared is a lot of laser. It is well in excess of what is typically recommended by the World Association of Photobiomodulation Therapy. And further, this was done every day. I mean, all five days of the week, three weeks. That is a lot of light packed into a small amount of time into a small amount of tissue. So what do you think they saw with this? Well, they saw about a 30% improvement in pain rating for the laser therapy group only and about a 10% improvement in the distal motor latency and sensory nerve conduction velocity, which, I mean, 10% doesn't sound like a lot, but realize this is just in three weeks. That's a pretty decent improvement, really. And in the TENS group, they had no significant improvements for pain or nerve conduction. Now, if they had stuck to a dosage it was more along the recommended dosage, uh, would they have had these same results? We don't know. Uh, if they had gone even higher in dosage, what would the results been? Or maybe if they'd only treated three days a week or two days a week uh, as compared to, you know, five days a week. We could play what-ifs with this all day long. The end result is these patients definitely improved with laser, but not with TENS. And so I think the first takeaway you should have from this is that, yes, there are recommended dosage levels. However, even if you get outside of those levels, there can still be improvements in some cases. But you should know where you're at and you should have a rationale for being outside of the recommended dosage levels. Now, the protocols and settings that we've put together here at Laser Therapy Institute are based on what research and the guidelines do 
show, but we've also seen how these work in practice, treating thousands of patients. So that is one of the situations where, yes, you might have some settings that are within or without, you know, outside of the Walt guidelines. And if you have a rationale for why you're doing that, for example, they've been used in practice for years, then that is a good reason to do that. But if you're not sure, then you don't want to be cowboying this and doing it on your own. If you want to know more about the WALT guidelines, if you want to know more about working within and outside of those guidelines and, and what kind of protocols and settings we provide our clinicians here at LTI, uh, shoot me an email. Again, info at lasertherapyinstitute.org. There's another takeaway, though, that I want to leave you with uh, as we kind of close out today's episode. And that is something they say about the wavelengths that they use. They say that combined wavelengths of 830 and 1064 produce better transparency with less scattering and higher energy transfer. And they also say that it is known that a wavelength of 830 nanometers has better transparency or less absorption in relation to three major absorption components of the human body, which would be melanin, hemoglobin, and water. But they have a wide scatter. So that means these 830 nanometer wavelengths can get in deeper, but they do scatter a lot as they go in, right? So it does uh, go through the tissues quite easily, but it spreads out a lot very rapidly as it enters the tissues. So then they go on to say, but a wavelength of 1064 penetrates tissues less well, but shows excellent low scatter. So in essence, they've selected a wavelength that penetrates very well, and they've paired it with a wavelength that doesn't scatter as much. And so they're getting really the deepest penetrating light you possibly can, uh, and they've paired them up together to use for this study. And so the takeaway there should be that you should know how you're using your wavelengths with light therapy, and not just one wavelength. There's no one perfect wavelength that does everything for you, right? There are multiple benefits to having multiple wavelengths with certain conditions. It depends really on what you're trying to accomplish. Again, if you want to know more, you can hit me up, send me an email, or browse the website. Browse some more of these episodes. We've got episodes we've done further back that talked a lot about the use of wavelengths. But finally, remember, with your patients that have or say they have carpal tunnel syndrome, do them the service of a good thorough history, a good thorough exam, and any related testing that needs to happen before they head off to surgery you might be doing your patient a massive benefit by making sure that they are fully informed and they have access to the very best care possible, which in some cases might be laser therapy. Thanks very much. I'll look forward to seeing you back here next week. Subscribe now to keep learning about the growing field of laser therapy. Check out our patient-focused podcast, Healing at the Speed of Light, a great resource for your patients. For massive practice growth and improved patient outcomes, become a certified Laser Therapy Institute clinic. Learn how at lasertherapyinstitute.org.